joining me, of course, is my colleague, uh, Robin Gill. Robin, uh, this is probably obviously the most uh, uh, probably talked about subject on this show the last three days. And I'm glad to have you uh, join me because uh, it, 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 it is ongoing. It continues. Uh, and joining us now uh, is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. And I want to talk to a little bit about the Surrey police uh, transition uh, based on some of his words yesterday and also what's uh, transpired over the last 24 hours or so. Richard, welcome. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, before we get into the issue of Surrey, uh, I think we should talk just for a brief moment about uh, MLA Melanie Mark. Uh, just uh, maybe a couple of hours ago in the, in the legislature, uh, she announced her resignation. It was an incredibly thoughtful and emotional uh, speech that she delivered in the legislature. We have a few um, few uh, moments of, from that speech. Take a listen. This decision did not come lightly. I'm not quitting. If anything, I'm standing up for myself. For the first time in my life, I'm exercising my self-determination as a single mother to put myself and my daughters first. She's changed this place. She's changed our province. She has unimpeachable character. Um, every memory I have of working with Melanie is a treasured one, and I'm so grateful to have been her colleague. Uh, Ms. Mark, uh, I should mention, was the first First Nations woman to serve uh, in BC's legislature. And as a cabinet minister, she was first elected in 2016 and served as Minister for Advanced Education. Uh, and skills and training, and also served as tourism minister. And uh, certainly when I was in the legislature, she uh, was a, an amazing force. I did text her uh, after her speech today just to thank her for her service uh, and all that she had uh, uh, just all that she contributed uh, to uh, our province. But a very moving speech today, wasn't it, Richard? It wasn't just moving jazz. It was uh, foundation rocking, uh, questioning uh, the colonial institutions that we live in in this province. Uh, part of what she said is she described the legislature as feeling like a torture chamber. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I asked her about that following her speech, she said it was the attack that she received, uh, not as a minister, but as a First Nations woman. She says that women get it far worse uh, than men do in the legislature, in public life, that Indigenous women, Indigenous individuals get it far worse in elected life than everyone else does, uh, that we need to work together to understand uh, the inherent colonialism and racism in our society and row together, as she described it, to help make things better. And she's young leaving elected life, but she described it as having a lot more to give to help address these fundamental issues. Mm-hmm. She said institutions fundamentally reject change. They are allergic to do things differently, particularly colonial institutions like this legislature and the government at large. And ultimately, she believes she could achieve some through that system, but can achieve more success outside of it. Richard, did she leave the door open at all and maybe suggest that she could come back to politics one day? It, it didn't sound like it, Robin. It sounded like this was someone who was finished in elected life, that she can achieve more outside of it, uh, that her accomplishments she described were often criticized and not celebrated, and that she accomplished so much that was not recognized by the media, uh, 
her colleagues, it seemed, the institution itself, the public. And there is a deep distrust towards that. And yes, she's working on her own health issues. She described she was recently diagnosed with ADHD, that a child is going through a health issue as well, that she needs to be there in Vancouver with them rather than traveling here to Victoria for the legislative session. Again, those things could change, Robin, but it sounded like she believes that that her skills, her energy that she described, a huge amount of energy and excitement for life and, and changing things can she can be more effective doing that outside of, of this legislative change. It, it is an indictment, isn't it, though, when somebody feels they can do more outside than inside? I'm not saying a contribution outside can't be significant. It can be. But you're a lawmaker inside. You should be able to do a lot more. But the fact that an elected official, first First Nations woman, as I said, elected, uh, feels that more can be done outside of that chamber is an indictment, uh, I think, on all of us to a certain degree in regards to doing better uh, because it shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't have to... She shouldn't have to make that statement. No, and this is part of what I think she hopes people take from uh, hearing her words. And, and you'll see a lot more on this on the news hour tonight. Uh, I'm going to play in my story as many of these clips as possible uh, so that people can see these words coming from her voice rather than mine. And, and you know, we, we saw something similar with uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould leaving elected life there Um and, and Mark said somebody needs to do the research here on the way that Indigenous women, First Nations women, are treated in elected life and that women are treated in elected life. And it is not the same as what other people are feeling. And that is a problem with our institution that, that I think many agree needs to be addressed. Because like you said, Jazz, being in elected life, having that power to be a lawmaker is in some ways the ultimate power. And to feel that your voice is not being heard or you are... Um, not being properly acknowledged for that uh, is a challenge within our institution. Uh, part of it, and this is my assessment, is we have uh, politics has gotten to the point where you actually have people who are paid uh, to find fault in everything people do. Yeah. You can focus your attacks, uh, in not just media, but more so in social media, uh, websites, uh, all of that. Uh, the attacks today are immediate and sustained and pointed more than ever before. It isn't just about taking criticism on the 6 o'clock news or the morning newspaper. This is criticism that can start at 6 in the morning and evolve and change but still be persistent all day, every day, and people pile on because you're not viewed as a human being. You're viewed as a character, a politician. There is no... You're not a human being. You're you're just somebody who can be criticized. So uh, I, I... And I've been there on the other side of, of, of uh, you know, dealing with that criticism as well. And I understand where she's coming from. It is a tougher business today. Uh, I think it is still the the ultimate position in regards to doing good in society. But the issues that she raised today and other women have raised should be of concern to everybody, our democracy, because when you cannot attract good people, and there's a general assumption amongst the public that we are uh, guaranteed uh, this lifestyle, this democracy, this government. That is not true. Societies can fall very quickly when you don't attract good people and encourage good people. And when good people can't feel uh, they can do good work, they will put their names forward. But increasingly in politics, good people saying, I don't want that criticism. I'm not going to put myself through it. I'm not going to put my wife through it, my husband through it, my partner through it. I'm not going to put my children through it. And what you're hearing from her is what you've heard from other women as well, that we have to do better or our democracy will suffer. Our leadership will suffer.
Yeah, well said, Jazz, and, and I don't think there's a lot to add in that regard, but you are correct in your notion that our institutions are the strongest when the best of our society feels like they could be involved in our institutions. And uh, when that is no longer the case, our institutions falter. Absolutely. We are speaking to Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. We were just talking about uh, MLA Melanie Mark announcing her resignation uh, in the legislature. Uh, of course, Richard will have more on that story on tonight's news. Hour. Let's talk about the issue of the moment, which is, of course, the Surrey, city of Surrey's police transition. Uh, earlier this week, uh, the mayor of Surrey said a 17.5% uh, property tax increase is coming. 9.5% of that uh, would be for the uh, transition back to the uh, Surrey RCMP. Now, earlier today, Richard Vaughn Palmer, a columnist with the Vancouver Sun, was on with Simi Sarah. And he talked a little bit about the provincial government's uh, skepticism when it comes to moving back to the RCMP, basically picking up on some of the comments you made yesterday. But let's take a listen to Vaughn here. Farmer said, I'll tell you one thing we're not going to approve. We will not approve any plan to retain the RCMP that entails restaffing the RCMP in Surrey with officers transferred from other RCMP-serviced communities in B.C., like Prince George or anywhere else in B.C. I'm guessing that farmers just told us what the problem was with going back to the RCMP, is there isn't a plan that involves preserving the RCMP that doesn't involve raiding RCMP officers from other parts of British Columbia. I took that as a pretty big hint that... The, the provincial government, the Solicitor General's ministry, is skeptical about the transition plan going back to the RCMP. Now, Richard, is this that one of the main points that could actually um, mean the Mike Farnworth and the government are looking at keeping the SPS? For sure. I'm learning a little bit more about exactly what is in that plan. It's never been made publicly available, but what Vaughn was referencing was part of the original plan. It is no longer part of the plan that the RCMP was planning on moving officers from other parts of the province to Surrey to help offset the losses of uh, officers who've already committed to going to the Surrey Police Service. What I've also learned about the plan uh, and that is currently missing Uh, is the idea of how many people actually graduate from the RCMP. So the numbers that are being used by the RCMP uh, and the city of Surrey are based on how many people are in the program to become RCMP officers, and it does not factor in the number that fail. And about 17% of those that start the program don't finish, which means there could be a shortage of 17% Policing. We also know that right now in Surrey, about 20% of all calls are done by the Surrey Police Service. So the RCMP doesn't just need to maintain its current staffing numbers, it needs to increase. And the last piece I am told that the minister is concerned about are retirements. Uh, The plan does not factor in how many people are planning on retiring in the short term. And we know uh, that Based on uh, graduation, more people are planning on retiring in the short term than will graduate to replace them uh, in Surrey. All of this has the province pointing to a shortage. And we also know that there are officers interested in joining Surrey police and have already committed to doing so because they want to live in Metro Vancouver. They don't want to be in a position with the RCMP where they can be moved to Burns Lake, to Vanderhoof, to Williams Lake, and away from Metro Vancouver. All of that points to the fact that the RCMP has a serious problem here to ensure that they get the staffing and 
I think ultimately, Jazz, this comes down to the fact that Brenda Locke did not have all the information that she needed when she was running for mayor and that some of this was not provided to her when she made the big promise of going back. And it is proving to be much more challenging than she ever believed it was when she was making this commitment on the campaign trail. Those are all very good points you make. Now, let's go back to an interview I did with Norm Lipinski, Chief Constable uh, of the Surrey Police Service uh, in October, right after... Uh, the civic election when Brenda Locke was elected. Take a listen to what he had to say in regards to the 18-month severance uh, package conversation. There is a severance package. There's a couple of options there, but it's uh, 18 months. And if you do the math, it's about uh, $60 million. That's our math on the severance. But, Jazz, the way I look at it is essentially these people would be out of a job because they didn't come to join any other organization. They came to join this organization. There's also a labor, I would say, contractual issue there as well, in the sense of some of these people have cashed out their pensions. And uh, is pensions, the ones that carried their pensions, is it reversible? I don't know. I suppose somebody's going to look into that. There is a wage difference. What about seniority? What does that really mean? If I have somebody with uh, 10 years service, is it going to be 10 years service over there? What does that mean for promotional opportunities? I mean, when you listen to what you've just said to to us, Richard, uh, uh, based uh, picking up from what Vaughn was saying, and what we just heard from Mr. Lipinski, this is back in October, uh, boy, if, you, if you're a betting person, it seems to me that uh, things are leaning more and more towards keeping the Surrey Police Service. And this is nothing to do with the politics of it. I don't believe, Jazz. I mm-hmm. think the province respects the fact that the people of Surrey elected a council and a mayor who want to see things go back to the RCMP for that service to continue in the community. They respect that and understand that. But ultimately, it comes down to the point of no return and significant staffing issues that were not accounted for during an election and during a commitment. And there was optimism from the mayor that she would be able to ensure that those officers currently working for the RCMP returned, and she had commitments from Ottawa that the RCMP would ensure enough people were on the ground in Surrey. I think those were promises from the brass in Ottawa that just can't be kept based on all of the things we've discussed. And that is making it highly challenging for the city of Surrey to produce the documentation for the province to show them that they actually have the boots on the ground in order to do that. There's just such a huge gap that now exists with staffing that filling that gap, especially we haven't even talked about the general labor shortage that we're experiencing across the board. With that factoring in, it makes it a challenge that seems to be, based on what we're hearing step by step from the minister, uh, an insurmountable challenge here. Oh, fascinating story, Richard. Any idea? I've got about 20 seconds here. Any idea when we can expect a decision? Yeah, my guess is just before March break. So at some point in the next few weeks, the last one was pushed back, obviously, but the minister wants to get this done. He desperately wants to stop talking about this and get this off his desk. He doesn't believe this is his issue. This is an issue for the people of Surrey, and so expect that conversation or that decision pretty soon. Hey, I don't want to stop. I don't want to keep talking about this either. But it's such a big issue. But I re- really <laughs> well, appreciate your time, my friend. Eventually, we'll get a decision. <laughs> <laughs> we will. Thanks so much, Richard. Yeah, thanks, Ed.